Hello and welcome. You're listening to Nature's a Hoot with Tom Morath and Hannah Shaw, the wildlife podcast from the Hawk Conservancy Trust. As you know, we're all about birds at the Trust, but birds don't live alone. They're part of a whole ecosystem. So the podcast is our chance to take a more general look at wildlife beyond birds. If you are itching to know more about biodiversity, more about barn owls, or eager to explore the worlds of woodlands and wetlands, basically, if you like wildlife, you're in good company. And you don't need to be an expert. We've got that covered, as we're joined by some of the greatest voices in conservation to tell us more about what's happening right now in the wild world around us. Coming up in this month's episode, we're focusing on the falcons, and a little later on, We'll be checking in with conservation biologist and recipient of the 2020 Marion Pavier Award, Dr Georgia Jones. Yes, Georgia has been using a unique way to study samples from kestrels. So she uses malted feathers in order to glean information about what they are eating. All this and more coming up in this episode. So, Tom, how have you been? Yeah, I've been all right. It's been a very <laughs> exciting few weeks with, like, suddenly I'm seeing people everywhere. Yeah, reopened. It's weird. Reopened the Hawk Conservancy Trust to the great British public, and mm. it's been lovely. It's been so nice to be able to talk to people again about it. Like, we've been talking to ourselves about birds of prey, and we all we all know that we all love birds of prey. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's a no-brainer. Um, and obviously we've been talking to people through our social media and I've been doing a few like evening talks and things. Nice. Um, but um, it's, it's never quite the same as when we're doing our displays and, and shows and yeah. we, can, we can really properly talk to people. Yeah, sure. How, how about you? Has, it, has things changed a lot for you the last few weeks? Um, yeah, it's nice. I have been coming in um, to the office a bit more, so not always working from home now. So I was completely working from home, obviously, during the lockdown lockdowns however many lockdowns we had um <laughs> but this is number 56 yeah <laughs> so step 27 of the uh, <laughs> coming out of lockdown yeah I <laughs> have been coming into work which is really nice and it's lovely to see visitors again um yeah and like you said lovely lovely to see the displays going again and um just catch up with all the staff and catch up with the birds it's really nice um yeah we've had good weather for it as well haven't we I yeah. mean I, I say good weather it's like really good so long as you're not like a farmer mm. and so long as you're not wildlife <laughs> it's yeah, really it's, good it's a bit everything's of a worry, so dry it? yeah it's a bit of a worry I mean where's the rain it's supposed to be April isn't April April's usually renowned I mean for its sort of up and down weather April showers we, yeah and April showers but I mean we had the beast from the east didn't we in April what two or three years ago and then Was we sort April? of had yeah. some funny weather at the beginning of April, some frosts, and now it's starting to warm up again. And it seems to be getting really hot and, yeah, really dry. It's really yeah, strange. I've been to not I've been topping up the topping up the pond from yeah um, from the water butt and making sure the bird bird bath is full up in the garden. It's definitely getting used. Yeah, like more more and more all the time. So, mm. yeah, it's it's lovely to be out in the sunshine, but yeah, a bit bit concerning for wildlife. And actually, yeah. 
I've almost forgotten, but you told me about the <laughs> <laughs> the tadpoles. That, or were they tadpoles then? You saved some some sort of uh, amphibian. No, they weren't. They weren't tadpoles yet. Um, so I know it's very naughty to um, translocate. Um, Don't do this at home. Yeah. So so <laughs> hopefully I'll be forgiven for the circumstances. Um, so we walk our dog in a in um, a bit of forestry land like close to us or a mm. bit of land close to us that's forested and it's managed and there's a track going through it and my husband Paul he was walking with the dog and he found a huge puddle back when it was really wet and it was full of frog spawn and he sent Fantastic. me yeah amazing and he sent me a picture and I was like, oh that's amazing that's brilliant we should go back and check this all right um and we went back and really really sadly it had been driven through quite a few times and oh, no. lots of the frog spawn was just dried out. Like there wasn't so much puddle left. Um, yeah. And I, and I thought, Oh, you know, there was one little clump in there that didn't look great. <laughs> I have to say, but I thought maybe if we just come back later with a jar and we could just put it into the pond and just see if anything happens. So we came back with a jar and we took, we took a little clump of it. Um, it didn't look brilliant. It was very sandy and very dirty, but yeah, put it in our pond. And I thought after all those frosts we had and after the bad weather and the fact that it had probably been driven over a couple of times that oh, there was no chance this was going to work. But then yesterday I saw a tadpole in my pond and I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I had seen one previously, but it didn't look very well. It was very small. It was very, uh, not really moving very much. But then yesterday I saw one that looked, what I would think was quite healthy. And then I spotted another couple. So I think I've got three tadpoles, which I am okay. ecstatic about. <laughs> that is the beginning of a healthy population of yeah. frogs in the garden, isn't it? <laughs> They're going to grow up in a world of looking through the surface of the water at your face, beaming down yeah. at them, aren't they? Like going and checking them every day, I bet. Yeah, I will be. I certainly will be. <laughs> So Hannah, this month we're talking, well, we're, we're dedicating this whole episode really to British falcons. And we're very, very lucky in the UK to, well, we've got a few species of falcons, haven't we, that, we're, yeah. that grace our skies and amaze us whenever we see them. Uh, what have we got? Well, we have peregrines, obviously, fastest mm. bird in the world, epic peregrines. And then we've obviously got the kestrel, which we do a lot of work at the Trust with, and hobby and merlin. And... You tell me that there's also j j j j. This is a hot topic, do you know? Jer falcons, yes. Jer, not not Gaia or Ger or any of the others. Jer falcons, G Y R Jer falcons. Yeah, I'm sure. Pretty much like in the northern tip of Scotland, there's been cases of and and reports of spotting them up there, where it's obviously they're a cold climate species on the whole, aren't they? So really, you'll find them right up in the in the north, but very rare sight i mean they're, they're massive have you seen a jer falcon i don't know if i've ever seen a jer falcon in uh in real life are they they're slightly smaller than a saker falcon is that right or about the same size no i said they're bigger are they bigger yeah oh, they're massive okay. they're like the king of the falcons right they're huge I've, I've been lucky enough to work with a couple and they're just they're massive they are like they're big i think yeah, they're like bigger than a buzzard. They're definitely oh, wow. 100% heavier than a buzzard, like twice as heavy as a buzzard. And you know falcons, they've got these yeah. great big muscles, haven't they? They're yeah. just, they're all muscle and power. 
Um, whereas, you know, buzzers and kites are just built to glide, aren't they? So they're mm. like feather light. Um, but yeah, gerfalcons are, are huge. Um, and working in the bird world is, um, where do falcons sort of rate on your, of birds that you like to work with? Are you Do you enjoy working with falcons? Pre pretty high. Yeah. yeah. Falcons are like the ultimate. You're hard pushed to find something that's more exciting yeah. than seeing a peregrine falcon a few hundred feet above your head and then tucking their wings into that kind of characteristic stoop that falcons have yeah. and then plummeting down, down, down as fast as they possibly go down towards you, working with them day to day. Yeah. That is just something else. It's amazing. And we've, we've got two, so we've got two peregrine falcons here at the trust. We've got um, Farah and Raj and Raj belongs to uh, one of our colleagues, Miriam, and she, has a really good working relationship with Raz where she'll let him go um, in the meadow and she'll kind of just just wander around the meadow whilst he's gaining height. And it it's incredible once they learn, and this must happen to them in the wild as well. The, mm -hmm. last, the first couple of years, you know, they're maybe a bit slow off the mark and they're still learning. But once they get experienced, they just head out where they know they're going to find lift, either like thermal activities, that lovely yeah. warm rising air, or you know, using a bit of the breeze to their advantage. And within 30 seconds, they're like hundreds of feet up in the sky and they're just, um, the old kind of falconry term for it was waiting on. And literally okay. the bird will wait there in one position, just circling above where they think food is gonna be produced. And obviously in our case, that's from our bag. And in the wild, that's where they think prey is about to emerge from or is gonna fly underneath them. And um, and yeah, then they just took those wings and it's, yeah. yeah, it's sublime to watch them. It really is. And what are we talking with peregrines? What's the, what's the top speed? Well, there's, there's, there's lots of different reports. I yeah. was, I always learned that it's in excess of about 240 miles an hour at top, top speed. And I think quite miles often people, or kilometers, miles an hour, 240 miles an hour. Yeah. Miles an hour. What? Absolutely. Yes, it's really, really quick. Absolutely. But they're not going to do that on the regular. I think I think lots of people don't realise that that's going to be like the, the tip top of what they're capable of, probably. Yeah. Um, and they're not going to go 240 miles an hour for the sake of it. It's like all predators. Yeah. They're going to put just enough effort in yeah. in order to achieve their goal of catching their food. You know, they're not they're not going to write, put the afterburners on if they don't need to. <laughs> It's um yeah. But no, don't I mean, peregrines I mean, go beyond the force of gravity because they go so fast that they they go as fast as gravity would pull them, but then they actually accelerate beyond that speed. Yes, like That's beyond terminal amazing. velocity. Yeah, this that shape of their wing. Yeah. I'm I'm getting into territory here where I've I've not done <laughs> the science myself or or the amount of research I perhaps should have. But this kind of shape of their wing almost forces the air yeah. into almost these afterburners to give them that extra acceleration. It is just remarkable. Yeah. Amazing. They're fascinating to watch. Um, but of course, all this speed is for one reason really and one reason alone and that is so they can pack one hell of a punch when they hit their prey like you can imagine the force a female peregrine falcon weighs maybe a little more than a bag of sugar maybe maybe two and a half pounds maybe uh yeah maybe a kilo and a half let's mm. say you imagine a bag of sugar hitting you on the head at 200 miles an hour <laughs> and you're starting to get an idea of what it must be like to be hit by a peregrine yeah at full pelt if you're a pigeon <laughs> yeah that is incredible <laughs> so we're, we're obviously um 
we're obviously Peregrine Falcon fan, a, a fan boy and a fan girl of Peregrine Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's been great to see more of them, hasn't it, over mm. the last few years? I've definitely noticed that the population seems to be seems to be fairly healthy. I think, yeah, I think Peregrines are doing okay at the moment. I mean, they especially seem to be doing well in urban areas. Mm. So um, adapting well to, in, rather than what would be like in inverted commas natural for them to nest on cliff faces and um high up on uh maybe sort of yeah the edges of cliffs and coastal areas and stuff um they've taken to cathedrals and churches haven't they i'm sure you've yeah. have you seen them in salisbury Do they, are they yeah in well i i'm in i'm in salisbury and you know we can walk through salisbury cathedral grounds in fact yeah. i've not seen them this year but last year I mean, I heard them before I saw them because they're really noisy when yeah, they're coming yeah. into, into land to their nest site. Um, but yeah, they're, they're famous there now, haven't they? They've, I think they've nested there, mm. you know, maybe for the last six, seven years or maybe even more. So mm. they've become very famous for nesting on man-made buildings. Mm. If you think about it, you know, the sheer side of a cliff face is not a million miles away from that no. straight line of a, of a high-rise building, is it? Exactly, or cathedral, yeah. like you say. And no one ever goes up there. So it's no. perfect for them, really. <laughs> And Andover as well. I think there's a pair um, on the church in Andover, I believe. Yeah, just down Which the road from us, yeah. um, St Mary's, St Mary's Church. Yeah, yeah. it's lo lovely, lovely to see. In fact, I remember um, somebody telling me about their changes to their hunting timings okay. because they have adapted and learned to use um, the street lighting to their advantage. So obviously we recognise the owls as being you know, nocturnal predators on the whole, tawny owl's going to come out at night and catch its, catch its food. Um, in fact, there's some studies that individual pairs of peregrines have learnt to use the street lighting mm. and take their prey by surprise when they're sat and roosted up. So, you know, it's nice. kind of in for a penny and for a pound. You can nest on a skyscraper <laughs> and use street lighting. If humans are going to make all these changes, they seem to be a bird that, as so long as they, they're free of persecution, seem yeah. to be able to live alongside us that's that's what it should su should suggest i think yeah yeah now of course um peregrines aren't the only falcons that we have in the uk as no much we've as talked we a lot about them. peregrines yeah <laughs> um have you seen have you seen hobbies in the wild yeah i have i have seen uh i've seen hobbies because they're kind of partially migratory aren't they throughout they the year so yeah, yeah so um, I've seen them kind of just passing through. So I used to be in Northamptonshire yeah. and we, we were very lucky in Northamptonshire. We seemed to get uh, hobbies, merlins and obviously slightly off topic, but ospreys as well coming mm. through because they used to head to Rutland water. And I think hobbies too, because that water surface, yeah. any area of water is great for um, insects and dragonflies, yeah. especially hobbies are renowned for catching these little flying insects on the wing, aren't they? They're yeah. so agile. Absolutely. Yeah, so um, hobbies, uh, I think, sort of starting to arrive back here around now, sort of April yeah. time, aren't they? And yeah, I was I was asking Matt, our conservation biologist, for tips on spotting hobbies. And he said there's actually not very many places around here that are reliable. But like you said, they do seem to pass through. And then the best places to look are over water because they'll um, hunt like dragonflies and damselflies. Yeah. And he did also say that autumn is the best time. So... I'll be out oh, so at the other end of the year them. yeah when they're on their way back I guess or okay finish breeding do you know I've got a again another cool fact that I remember hearing about hobbies um was that they seem to recognize that their prey these dragonflies 
they require the warmth from the sun to increase their reaction time. So they kind of get a bit slow and sluggish into the evening. So a lot of people report seeing hobbies in the evening evening, or in the early morning is actually a better time because that's when they know their prey is going to be kind of slower, not quite so good on the reaction time to get away from them. So that makes sense. Pretty smart, I would say. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) And then what about Merlins? You said you've also seen Merlins near you. I have. Do you know, again, Merlins passing through, I've never seen what is the classic kind of, you know, upland hills where you'd expect to see Merlins, big, open, flat uh, moorland, basically, hunting the little larks in the in the heather. I've never seen that. I'd love to. I never have. Yeah. Um, but again, I have seen them passing through because, again, they, they move up and down the country, don't they, throughout, yeah, throughout yeah. the year. Have you have you seen a Merlin? Um, well, not that I can remember recently. I've seen I've seen them in Scotland, um, like you said, like in upland areas, but just perching um but still nice obviously Mm. um but yeah it would be lovely to see them hunting um but merlins are actually red listed in this country so yes in this country we have three levels green amber and red and for how birds are sort of categorized by their conservation status just in the uk um yeah and merlins are actually red listed in this country well historically though i mean all well you could say all birds of prey have gone Mm. through um, pretty serious sort of population crashes um, due to persecution and also use of um, pesticides like organochlorine pesticides, DDT, um, but especially affected peregrines, sparrowhawks, um, merlins as well. And And am I right in thinking, sorry, Hannah, I'm right in thinking that the, um, the issue with things like DDT was actually impacting their breeding capabilities. So um, I've always thought that the it impacted the egg, the eggshell of the f- yeah. of the female when she yeah. lays the egg. It was very brittle, and so when their yeah. parents sat on the eggs, it would break, and obviously causing the eggs to fail. Yeah, I think what it does is it um, makes the egg thinner. Um, right. Yeah, which would make it more brittle or more likely yeah. to break. Um, but what happens is it's through consumption of prey. So it moves up um, the food chain basically. So it's from them eating say birds or um, small mammals that might have eaten plants or insects that have been um, sprayed with been sprayed with crops. pesticides. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then that moves up the um, food chain. And what happens is an accumulation because as it goes up the food chain, it basically gets more concentrated in the animal. Um, yeah. And this is, this was a huge, problem for a lot of birds of prey historically um, and cause quite serious crashes in their populations and then with persecution as well I mean it's quite a sort of fight for them <laughs> historically yeah. lots of species um, well lots of species became completely extinct and then have since been um, reintroduced or re- re-established Mm. I guess um, most recently yeah. with that is the white-tailed sea eagle, isn't yeah. it? That was kind of persecuted to extinction in yeah. Britain. And now we're very, very luckily starting to yeah. see them returning to our, our countryside, which is yeah. awesome. Yeah, historically persecution. And then um, and then when alongside that, um, sort of in the 19th century, egg collecting became more popular. And as they became rarer as species, the egg collecting was worse because they were more sought after because the species were Mm. rarer but something that's quite interesting about birds of prey is that during the war 
um, or during the wars, um, their populations recovered somewhat because there wasn't as much persecution. So no, yeah. not very much game shooting. Think about that. Not yeah. very much persecution, um, meaning that they did sort of um, recover somewhat. But all all species of um, falcon have sort of fluctuated a lot in the 20th century um, in population. And then obviously kestrels, well, kestrels have fluctuated wildly. So they would have been affected by the organochlorine pesticides, declines in the 50s and 60s. And then they started to recover a bit. And then they started to decline again in the 70s and 80s, probably because of um, intensive farming. And they've since fluctuated a lot in England and declined quite significantly in Scotland. Um, I don't know if you've like looked for kestrels in Scotland, but I lived there for a few years and would never see a kestrel in Scotland. Really? Um, wh whereas now you see them, well, here you see them quite fairly often, I guess. Yeah. Well, you were talking to, to me the other day about the work that's being done in trying to understand the impact of rodenticides mm. with kestrels in their diet. So can we talk about that? Yeah. So um, with kestrels, we don't really know why they've, declined quite significantly recently well I say we don't really know um, some research has actually come out um, very recently so this year um, and that showed that by Roos et al and that showed that the consumption of rodents that have eaten um, rodenticides which is rat poison basically um, is thought to have contributed to kestrel declines so that's important um, to know that to know that um, that is having an impact on populations and so we're, we're finding that, or the, the researchers were finding that out by by studying found deceased birds. Uh, yeah. So looking at find, carcasses, yeah. 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 Which is it's sad. sad. So alongside our work with kestrels in the hospital, we also, of course, work to try to conserve them out in the wild as well, don't we? We try to uh, equip them with somewhere to live as part of our Raptor Nest yeah. Box project. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, we actually talked about this, didn't we, with uh, with Dr. Matt Stevens, who we should we get we should get him on the podcast yeah, at some we point. Should, should he we? was on the live show that we did uh, well, it was a couple of months ago now, Nature's a Hoot Live, which is our Kestrel special. We kind of dedicated it to Kestrels, um, and uh, yeah, he was telling us all about the work that we that we do with Kestrels locally across Hampshire and some of the surrounding counties as well. Um, I think yeah. it's great work, and I, I was. I was just smitten with going out seeing those those little kestrels yeah. in the box in the boxes. It's um, they're amazing. If if you fancy seeing a little bit more about what we do with uh, kestrels in order to support them, a fantastic British raptor. If you head across to our YouTube channel, you can watch all of Nature's a Hoot Live, uh, where we talk to uh, Matt Stevens and we also talk to Miriam, uh, one of our colleagues on the bird team, who actually brought Scout into our well our little Nature Hoot studio yeah. that we had there set up. It looked really professional i have to say <laughs> <laughs> and i shouldn't sound so surprised about that we are very professional um and you can watch that or i think the uh, stories from the field documentary as a standalone is also available on youtube as well so if you fancy knowing more about our work with kestrels that's where you should head next So we'll be coming back to our chat about falcons as we delve a little deeper into the work of our guest, Dr. Jones. 
But now it's time for a bit of fun with our matter of fact challenge. So this pitches you and me, Tom, against one another to come up with the best fact in the chosen category. So what was it last month? Uh, last month was best animal parent. Of course. Uh, who won that one? Was it, was it me? <laughs> <laughs> Again. So we've done Again. this twice now since we started the new series and uh, I've I've got two in a row, two in a row. And I won this time with uh, the orangutan. And I kind of wonder whether mine kind of had the cuteness factor yeah. over your octopus that you an octopus just can't compete on that level with a baby no. orangutan clinging to its mother. Like, come on. <laughs> oh, mine was the clear winner. <laughs> in your eyes only, in, in your eyes, eyes only. <laughs> I mean, it's got eight legs. Come on. <laughs> If it was most legs, you would have won fair and square, <laughs> yeah. but it was best animal parent. Oh, so I'm two, I'm two nil down. Um, so I think I need to up the ante. Um, so let's go again um, and hope that I can try to bring it back. This month's matter of fact challenge is... Bravest animal. You go first, Tom. Okay, I'll go first. Um, so I've gone uh, marine this time. I've kind of had a couple of cutesy animals and I'm going to go with a, a species of fish, which not necessarily very cute, but very, very brave. So we've got bravest animal. Um, I'm going with the cleaner wrasse fish uh, of the great coral reefs of nice. the world. Uh, you've perhaps seen these on, well, all sorts of documentaries, really. Their job is to be a fish cleaner. So all sorts of different uh, fish will come along to the rash fish and they will have small particles of their skin that are flaking off being eaten, some of their Nothing. scales, sometimes uh, parasites. If they've got cuts or grazes that are just part of everyday life, uh, these fish will come along and eat any bits of bits of flesh that are, uh, that are going a bit bad, that could potentially cause that fish a problem. Uh, and you might think, well, that's that's not particularly brave. I mean, to be fair, I wouldn't like to eat other people's dead skin. So that's quite kind of brave, it's like a bush tucker challenge. Um, but what's particularly brave about it is some of the animals that they're quite happy to do this with, including things like reef sharks and moray eels, kind of these formidable predators of the sea. Um, and there's actually footage that you can find of these uh, little wrasfish going inside of a shark's mouth mm. and and cleaning in between their teeth. And it looks like the whole situation is just gonna go terribly wrong, <laughs> but they have in fact this amazing symbiotic relationship. Nice. So there's that element of danger there, but the relationship means that uh, the wrasse fish gets a free and easy meal and the sharks and the moray eels, well, they get a free cleaning service. They both teeth help each other service. out. Absolutely. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's so cool. I love this little relationship they have going. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't fancy swimming headlong into a into a shark's mouth. So for me, me that is pretty brave. What about you, Hannah? What have you got? Not bad, Tom. Not bad. Um, so I'm going with the blue sheep. Um, so <laughs> it's not your run of the mill sheep. <laughs> so firstly, <laughs> blue sheep are adapted to um, living in the higher Himalayas and the mountains of the Tibetan Plateau. So they're adapted to extremely frosty conditions. I mean, can you imagine what a Himalayan winter is like? 
Yeah, well, if they're blue, I'm imagining they're really, yeah, really they're powerful. pretty blue. <laughs> so they are proficient mountaineers. Um, they hang out on cliffs and they're able to scale up and down almost vertical cliff faces. Um, and they use these cliffs um, to escape from predators and not just any predators from the formidable snow leopard. Mm. So not only do they have freezing temperatures and vertical cliff faces to contend with, but they also have snow leopards to escape from. So at times they do get hunted right on these cliffs. And sadly, they do face other challenges um, like Himalayan winters. Lots of energy needed to find food and keep warm, but they have actually evolved a high threshold for starvation so they can survive on less food over winter. Um, sadly, they are one subspecies is actually endangered um, in part of their range, the dwarf blue ski. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the dwarf. <laughs> What's that? The dwarf know. blue sheep. Um, and because they face uh, food competition with livestock. So, yeah, so that is my um, my bravest animal is the dwarf is the blue sheep because frosty conditions in the higher Himalayas, snow leopards to escape from. And at the same time, they're doing this all on basically vertical cliff faces. I mean, I don't know what you're like with heights, but I don't fancy trying to run away from a snow leopard um, on a cliff face in the Himalayas. No, I wouldn't do, <laughs> want to do that on flat land. No. <laughs> So yeah. that's my bravest animal. Okay. It's, yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I'm not sure it beats uh, swimming into a shark's, shark's <laughs> mouth. But remember, it is up to you, wherever and however you're listening to Nature's A Hoot, to vote for which fact you think best fits the bill of bravest animal. Yeah. So head over to our Instagram stories or our Twitter feed to vote. Um, and you can find both of those on at Hawk Conservancy. We will, of course, be revealing the winner of this month's episode's Matter of Fact Challenge next time. So we better get back to falcons now then as we speak to our guest for this month's episode. Yeah, we are really looking forward to introducing you to the recipient of our Marion Apavia Award from um, 2020. The purpose of our Marion Pavia Award is to fund research into the conservation of birds of prey, and it is intended to support early career researchers working towards this goal. So we caught up with Georgia to check in with how her research is going and to talk about her work in conservation biology. Okay, so today we're... Ca- up with our Marion Pavia Award winner from 2020. Uh, the Marion Pavia Award is a small grant that the Hawke Conservancy Trust gives each year. The purpose of the award is to further research the conservation of birds of prey and the intention is to, to kind of support early career researchers uh, towards their goals. Yes, yeah, so we are joined by Dr Georgia Jones and she is a conservation ecologist from Bournemouth University and our very lucky Marion Pavia Award winner for 2020. And her project um, was, or is, analysing kestrel diets. So welcome, Georgia. It's really nice to have you on Nature's A Hoot. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Uh, how's, your, how's your week going so far? It's been a busy and mixed week, yeah. but all, all going in the right direction. Good, good. How, how have you been finding lockdown and are you ready for the transition back out of lockdown? 
Um, ooh, I'm probably probably not ready. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of was prepped for it because when I did my PhD, I did it remotely. So pretty much, unless I was in the field, I was doing it from my dining table at home. Yeah. Um. So three years of doing that was excellent preparation. Yeah, for working um, from for, home. For coming into lockdown. Um. I've quite enjoyed the flexibility of it. Yeah. So being able to work around other things that interest me. Yeah. That's my parrot playing with his um, ball in the background, by the way. So sorry about that. I always love it when animals get involved in episodes. (laughs) They'll probably all try and chime in at some point. Oh, good. I can't wait. (laughs) So for our listeners, can you give us um, like a sort of quick overview of your project um, that the Marion Pavia Award helped to fund? Yeah, so I'm looking, as you said, at Kestrel diet, and I'm using two methods to look at it. So the first is the traditional method that lots of people probably know about, and is normally talked about in the context of owls, and that's looking at their pellets. So when they eat stuff, they take in bits that are really hard, like bones and teeth and all of that, and then they'll kind of put those together in a pellet and regurgitate them. So I've been collecting Uh, kestrel pellets from around my sites which are in Dorset and with the help of my lovely research assistant Carla uh, going through those pellets and identifying all the little bones and bits of beetle and reptile scales and all sorts that are in those so that we can look at the prey species that the kestrels have been feeding on. In addition to that we're using a slightly uh, newer and fancier technique which is called stable isotope analysis and for that I've been taking under license i should say uh, little tiny feather clippings <laughs> from yeah from kestrel chicks from boxes okay. that we have up around dorset and in those feathers are essentially the signatures of their prey so every prey has its own every animal is made of its own kind of recipe that's made up from whatever it feeds on so by looking in the kestrel feathers i can tell which prey species they've been feeding on as well so what is special about the research and how is it, um, how's it different to previous Kestrel studies? Well, this is the first time that stabilised type analysis will have been applied to Kestrels, I believe, anywhere, but definitely in the UK. Oh, wow. And I'm hoping that it's going to be better at picking up on prey that don't have easily identifiable big hard bits so it's really easy when you're looking through a pellet to see like bones and vole teeth and everything but it's less easy to find things like earthworms which have probably been completely digested oh that's really interesting so it basically if i i'm going to try and see if i understand um (laughs) so the looking forward to this (laughs) the isotope is um like you said a signature in um say the feather for example and that's and it's passed up through the food chain. So if they eat an earthworm, then the isotope that sort of represents the earthworm is passed up the food chain. And then when you do your analysis, you can see as you analyze the isotopes that the bird has eaten an earthworm. <laughs> um, so it's all it's all it's all the same isotopes, but oh it's gonna get nitty gritty to it's, all right. it's the it's the ratio so they're called stable isotopes because they exist in two forms yeah so we'll talk about carbon there's a light version and a heavy version of carbon and it's the ratio of light to heavy that is different in different animals Um, so it's the same isotope we're looking at 
but it's just those ratios will tell you more about what species they've been eating. Okay, okay. Right, so each of those things will have a signature amount of each, and you can kind yeah. of correlate that to whatever they've been eating. Oh, there you go. Exactly. Um, You've nailed it. Yeah, well done. You just explained it far better than, <laughs> than I could. Um, yeah, so the, it's actually the nitrogen that will tell me more about what they've been eating, but the carbon can tell me about where they've been eating it. So what kind oh, wow. of habitat types. So heathland versus woodland versus agricultural land, they should all have different carbon signatures. Of course. That's really interesting. It is really interesting. What's kind of the, the wider application of that in your kind of field of study? What do you hope to do with that information? Um, if we can look at if there are differences in what the kestrels are feeding on in different locations. I've also been recording from my nest boxes how many chicks uh, the pairs are producing every year. So we might be able to link it to their um, ability to breed and produce wow. babies so we might be able to see if different landscape types are affecting how the population's doing because we know that kestrels have declined but we're not yeah. entirely sure exactly why yeah i mean yeah that's a lot of the work that we're trying to sort of find out as well that's really interesting that you can look at uh the habitat and then the prey and then see it, like how that might affect productivity for example like with how mm. many chicks they're having or how well they're raising their chicks that's that's amazing <laughs> oh, and is there a particular reason why you chose kestrels as opposed to you know buzzards or red kites or or golden eagles that would have been exciting wouldn't it <laughs> um partly because i just i just really like kestrels i think they're my favorite yeah, they're uh, cool, uk they? bird of prey um the fact that there's already boxes makes them much easier to access and to study so for me to get into a, a kestrel box is much easier than me to access maybe a cliff nesting golden eagle <laughs> my yeah. safety department might, <laughs> have more, might have more to say about that <laughs> i do rock climb oh yeah look um, but not not very you. well I can see so that little... probably that probably wouldn't end well <laughs> oh yeah we've got a yeah i got a hangboard <laughs> up there is there are, are there any results that we that you could share with us now is there anything that you found so far or are you still sort of in the process of analyzing at the moment so the feathers are off with the stabilised type lab, um, which is over in Southampton. So I did lots of preparation work with making sure that they're all clean and snipped and in their little sample thingies. And my, I already mentioned her, but I'm going to mention her again. Uh, lovely research assistant Carla has done a lot of pellet analysis okay. uh, for me. And she's been sending me, she's actually just sent me the data. So I haven't had a good look at it yet. I've got all sorts of brilliant photos from the random stuff that she's been finding in there. And we <laughs> sent me a photo the other day and it looks like a whole Skylark foot. Oh, wow. From one of the pellets, um, which is brilliant. Lots of reptile scales, which look like they're probably from slow worms um, in a few of them as well. It's nice. pretty cool. And some wood mouse as well. Okay. So how many boxes are you looking at? How many kestrels are in your study? So for the initial part, um, which the money from you guys has helped to fund, it's seven different sites across okay. Dorset. And then we'll be expanding that hopefully this year by incorporating another 15. Okay. Um, which will be in extra habitats as well. And are you finding that the prey is quite varied 
so for say one kestrel um family or one kestrel are you finding that the prey is very varied for one individual is it between individuals more that you find say some like really like reptiles or some really like small birds yeah it looks so from when i collected the pellets as well there were certain sites where i would always find bird feathers and other sites which were much more which always looked much more beetle dominated so mm. it looks like there is definitely some specialization mm. and i know that that's been found in uh continental european populations as well yeah so that'd be really exciting if we can show it for uk kezzies that'll be really interesting because it's nice to see that um although they can there's like really broad in their diet range they can be very specialized and they also can be really adaptable to what is available i suppose so where there's fewer small mammals available then they might eat more birds for example it's quite nice yeah and then we we're thinking that because down um in oh where was it italy i think the study was done they found that some of them were able to specialize almost entirely on insects mm. and they thought that that's because it's warm enough for them down there that insects could provide them with enough energy yeah. because they didn't have to spend so much energy keeping themselves warm so if yeah. we have climate change going on in the uk Ooh, and it's getting warmer we could get them using more and more insects Ooh, and we don't know we don't know what that might mean for oh, their productivity so when you've sort of done this part of your project you said um you were going to expand um and add more kestrels is that the next step now for you yeah yeah so i actually need to get out in the next few weeks with the people that i'm working with and potentially evict any jackdaws or right. <laughs> try to take over <laughs> those nest boxes um, and maybe have a quick look see if there are any pairs starting to form territories and yeah, yeah it's the good bit actually get to go and see the birds yeah it's nice to be able to get kind of hands-on isn't it with some of these animals that you're working with and actually be there um rather than oh, kind of yeah. just be a, a theory <laughs> yeah it's just those brief brief shiny bits of field work yeah in between all the spreadsheets and data analysis yeah, yeah well you say that don't you Hannah that like so much of your job of is actually office base and it's the bit that you go I can go outside yeah <laughs> when would you expect to kind of have like concrete stuff back like you obviously you said that the samples have gone off for testing when would you be able to say right that's the book closed on my kestrel research i'm hoping the book will never be closed on my kestrel oh. research because there's always more to find out but from this kind of preliminary beginning study i'd like to put the isotope and pellet data together by june and have it all analyzed and kind of in a understandable format <laughs> Excellent. Well, we look forward to, to yeah. seeing seeing those end products. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. That was really interesting. It's really nice to hear about your project. I feel like I understand better now what's going on. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so it's definitely good to chat to you. And I'm sure our listeners will really um, will really love to hear about it. It took me quite a long time to wrap my head around exactly what George's work was doing, but now I think I understand it. Yeah. It's quite an amazing way of understanding kestrels and what they're eating, isn't it? It's like different to what I'd expected. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's just great to um, 
be trying, you know, all these innovative techniques of working out what animals are doing. It's just really interesting. So we'll be doing the Marion Pavier Award again, I assume, this year. So if there's any kind of like budding researchers out there, conservation workers behind Birds of Prey, it's a, it's a really great way to kind of kickstart a project, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we will be running it this year. Um, as for when we're doing that, I'm not quite sure yet. So that is to be confirmed. Yeah, um, pending. Usually, um, usually we start the process in May. So we'll find out soon, I think. Um, what the process is for that but just keep an eye on our website and yeah it's it's um it's a small award but it's really um a good amount if you're doing a small research project or you're early on in your career um wanting to get sort of get going with your bird of prey research it's a really good boost for researchers yeah and are you one of the people that gets to choose who gets the award hannah I am part of the um i don't know what the we committee. call ourselves the committee yes I wow am part of the committee. wow so I actually, my, my job with it is really cool because I um, go through all of the applications. So I get to read through all of the applications and look through and me and a couple of colleagues then, so everybody looks through them, but we then do a shortlist um, and then we have a meeting about the shortlist. And yeah, it's cool because you just get to read about loads of interesting projects to do with Birds of Prey. Uh, it sounds fantastic. Yeah, looking forward to seeing what the next one will be and yeah. to see where uh, Georgia's research yeah. leads to. The weather's getting warmer and after one or two late April showers, the grass is really starting to grow. There's a massive temptation at this time of the year to start mowing the lawn more and more often to keep the garden tidy. This month's top tip is to try to go for a no-mow May. Lawns across the country provide amazing habitat for all sorts of back garden wildlife. Letting the flowers bloom on your lawn helps to provide a vital source of nectar for bees and other insects. What could be easier than not mowing your lawn for an entire month? What will I do with all that saved time? So that's it for May. Can you believe it, Hannah? Yeah, uh, it's just the, the year is just getting away from us. Tom. Whipping on by, <laughs> whipping on by. But a quick reminder of our matter of fact challenge. So you can vote for e either Tom or um, or me, of course, even better, um, on our Instagram stories or our poll on Twitter. Yes. And it's worth mentioning, actually, that we owe our listeners a massive thank you for tuning in and listening to us each month. Yes. Uh, I was having a look to see how we were doing in terms of ratings this week. Nice. Uh, and we managed to reach number 21 in trending nature podcasts in the whole of the UK on Apple Podcasts, uh, which is not bad going. That's actually. amazing. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of us and our little podcast here. Yeah, Just so people actually amazing. like listening to us. <laughs> yeah, that's really nice. So thank you if you're listening. And if you'd like to help us reach even more people, then there's a few things you can do. You can leave us a review on Google and Apple Podcasts and people can read the reviews before listening. And if they're good reviews, they might be encouraged to listen too. Uh, also sharing with your friends, your family, your colleagues, anyone you think likes nature or maybe even someone who doesn't who might be inspired by what we've got to say. 
share it with them and get them listening too. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, there's loads more where that came from. So don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss out. If you would like to know more about anything we've talked about in today's show, then you can head over to our social media pages and you can read our blog that accompanies this podcast. And you can find us on social media. So that's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube at Hawk Conservancy. Next month, we'll be joined by none other than the star of Springwatch, author of Back to Nature and presenter of the new CBBC show, Planet Defenders, Megan McCubbin. Yeah, that is going to be a good one. But from Hannah and I, it's goodbye until next time. See you then.